Thank you for tonight and this opportunity we have to study the Word together. I pray that as we um, conclude this Old Testament series that it would be useful for our thinking, that we would be able to uh, make sense of the Old Testament as we read it um, privately, that we would be able to read it um, from the lens of the New Testament understand what's going on and apply it to our own growth and sanctification. So God, I pray that you would bless this final section, and we ask this in Christ's name. Amen. All right, so let's start with our map. Everybody got this down by now, right? I think everyone at this point should have a really good, at least general memory of how this works. And that gets a little different every time. Do you see the basic structure? So Mediterranean Sea, Red Sea, Dead Sea, Galilee, Persian Gulf, um, Tigris and Euphrates, Jordan River, Nile River, something like that. Okay, so where do we start out? Eden, which we put here. Just because those two rivers are mentioned, we don't know the exact location. What's our next major area? We call it Ur. That's the actual place Abraham came from. Old Persia, we could say. Then what's next? Israel. Then Egypt. Then and then Babylon. Babylon. And then back to Israel. All right, so we go Eden, Ur, Israel, Egypt, Israel, Babylon, Israel. Okay, who can do that? You. <laughs> I, can't, I can't always remember them. So no. Who can take a side with just the names? Anybody? Joanne, okay. go for it. Eden, Ur, Israel, Egypt, mm-hmm. Israel, Israel, Babylon. And then? Israel. Back to Israel. Very good. So Adam and Eve are created in the garden. They promptly fall. Sin enters the world. They repopulate. God destroys the world. Saves Noah. They repopulate. And this area where God calls Abraham out of Ur to come to the land, he would show him, which ends up being... Canaan, later Israel, he has Isaac and then Jacob and the 12 sons who end up living in Egypt, later become slaves. After 400 years, Moses leads them out of the promised land. They receive the Ten Commandments. They wander in the wilderness for 40 years and they enter under Joshua's leadership into the promised land. They take over, they're ruled by judges. And then by three kings, Saul, David, and Solomon, kingdom splits in the north and south. The north is called Israel. The south is called Judah. And then the south follows the Davidic kings. Israel adopts a new king and a new religion on day one. So they're always um, in idolatry in the north. The southern kingdom's always a little behind. Um, Assyria comes and conquers the northern kingdom. Babylon conquers Assyria and then comes and conquers the southern kingdom, destroying Jerusalem, its wall, especially the temple, and takes those people into exile where they live 70 to 80 and some even longer than that in exile over there. The Persians conquered the Babylonians, and the Persians under Cyrus um, allowed God's people to come home, where they eventually rebuild the temple, they rebuild the wall around Jerusalem, and ultimately they await the coming of the Messiah. So we have covered almost all of this history so far. So we spent one whole night just on Genesis, and then we looked at Exodus through Deuteronomy. Genesis took us where on this map? From Eden to Ur 
to Israel, to Egypt. So we get all the way to Egypt in the first book of the Bible. Then it takes Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy to get through the wilderness wanderings um, and just ready to enter the promised land. We enter the promised land, and what books of the Bible happen? First Joshua, that's the conquering of the land, and then the people are ruled by, and what book is that represented by? Judges. And then there's a book that happens during Judges, Ruth. Ruth happens when the judges were judging in Israel. And so that happens there. And then we have the history of the kingdom period. And we've been through that. So the history of, it starts with Samuel, the last judge and prophet. And then it goes to Saul, David, and then Solomon. And then it splits. And what two books of the Bible cover that era? First and second Kings. So first, really it's first, second, third, and fourth Kings. In English Bibles, we call them 1st and 2nd Samuel, 1st and 2nd Kings. Same books. So we divide it up. That's how far we made it with the history of the Old Testament. Then we pressed pause, and we looked at two categories of Scripture. So we looked at, the first, the prophets. Now, you remember how many prophets there were? That was a trick question. There's 12 minor prophets. So we call them minor in that case means what? Short, minor prophets, and then there were either three, four, or five books of the major prophets. So definitely Isaiah, Jeremiah, and Ezekiel, and then some people include Daniel there, and some people include Lamentations there, but Daniel and Lamentations sometimes are in the writings, which is the section we're in now. So we looked at the prophets, then we looked at the wisdom literature. You remember those books? I think that was last week. So that was the book of Psalms, then Song of Songs, Proverbs, and Ecclesiastes. I missed one. Ecclesiastes, one more. Did y'all say it? Job? Did y'all say Job? Job. So Job through Ecclesiastes are our wisdom books. So let me just give this to you in another form. So I think I've mentioned this before. Sometimes you'll see the Old Testament called the Tanakh. You ever heard that before? This is just their division in the Hebrew Bible of the Old Testament books. So this T stood for what? Do you remember? Torah. Torah, which is the law. And then the M, N, sorry, do you remember? Nevi'im, that was the prophets. Yeah, oh, that's so hard to do. You ever tried to write down like that? That's just, my brain just breaks every time that happens. So this would include in their Bible the... Um, 15 books, okay? They would have done the 12 minor prophets and then the, um, no, because they actually included Samuel and Kings. Anyway, so prophets, and then the last one, you remember? <coughs> Katavim, which is the writings. All right, so in their Bible, the right, they're in this order as well. So you have the Torah, then the prophets, and then the writings. So what's the last book in our Old Testament in our English Bible? Malachi, right? So where would Malachi be in that division? It would be here. So it's not last. Rather, the writings are last, and the wisdom literature is first. So actually, the books we're covering tonight, chronologically speaking, and in sequential order in their Hebrew Bible, we're looking at the last books of the Hebrew Bible as Jesus would have known them. 
Does that make sense? So, of course, what period of history do you think they're going to cover? Exile and return. So if you look on your paper, you'll see the books we're covering. So we're going to look at First and Second Chronicles, Ezra, Nehemiah, and Esther. And <coughs> a lot of ways, these are some of the less preached from books. Um, probably because Ezra and Nehemiah are hard to relate to um, in some ways, but we'll try to make sense of that as we go. We're going to start with our order, which is not the same as the order in the Hebrew Bible. So if you look through here, you can see it goes um, Esther, Daniel's in this category, then Ezra and Nehemiah, and then Chronicles. So Chronicles literally ends the Old Testament from a New Testament perspective 2,000 years ago. Does that make sense? We're going to start with Chronicles anyway because it's first in our Bible um, because of its history. So we're going to just walk through all three sections, which is Chronicles, Ezra, Nehemiah, and then Esther. And so let's uh, dive in. Grab your Bible and let's just open to Chronicles. Okay, who has read Chronicles before? It's been a long time. Okay, so did anybody do, in any of the years we've been doing it, the whole Bible plan for our Reformation month? And then you've read First and Second Samuel, First and Second Kings, and you get the First and Second Samuel. What do you realize immediately? I've already read this. All right, so really, there's nothing in First or Second Chronicles that you didn't read somewhere else, which is important. So let's just see where it starts. So what's the very first character in First Chronicles? Adam. So technically, where does Chronicles begin? <coughs> the very beginning. There's a sense in which we could say Chronicles is a survey of the entire history of God's people. Now, that comes in the form of, did anybody skip the first few chapters when you were reading Chronicles? You can be honest here. Uh, why would we have a tendency to skip those chapters? You can look down and know immediately. <laughs> this is genealogies, right? So for them, that was kind of like an outline. And if you know who these people are, and you walk through this outline, then you can remember the stories that go with this. Did anybody have to remember like the U.S. presidents in order and history? Right? Memor memorizing those in order in of itself doesn't necessarily help you. But if you know the stories that go with those, knowing the order and being able to say them will actually help you retell the story. And know, like for me, it's always easy. I know it's Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. If I got those three names in that order, then I can put the stories that go with those names in the right order. Does that make sense? So it's really serving that way as we open in Chronicles. Um, but what's interesting, here's the thing I want you to see. There's a key difference between Chronicles and first and second Kings or first and second Samuel or really anything leading up to that point. So let's just think about where we are historically. So if we start in Egypt, Moses started writing which books of the Bible? The Torah. Then we get into Israel, what books start to be written here? So Joshua, Judges, Ruth, first and second Samuel. Samuel's one of the major players in writing the early parts of that. Obviously he didn't write the, the three books that come after him. But uh, those are being written pre-exile, okay? Chronicles is that same story written after the exile. Does that make sense? So 
God's people go to Babylon. They stay here for two generations, basically. And then they come back home. And from their perspective, the glory days, are they ahead or behind? They're behind. Who do you think a key character is going to be if you're looking backwards then? David. Here's the key. So when you think about Chronicles, when you read Chronicles, it's written from the perspective of post-exile. The exile has already happened, and they're remembering these stories. Now, do you ever tell a story differently 10 years later than you did right after it happened? All right, so, so your first blank there, the Chronicles are, are written from a post-exile perspective, but surveys the history of Israel from Adam to the Babylonian captivity. So thinking about that, when you tell a story 10 years later, what changes in the story? <laughs> All right, well, the details change, but in what sense do the details change? Is better or worse? Well, it depends on why you're telling the story, right? Yeah. All right, well, for one, you get better at telling the story, and uh, I've got stories. So this is a story I do every six weeks about Pax and Blaze, and I've told the story so many times now. I'm not saying the Bible does this part, but I don't remember which parts of the story um embellishing and which parts happen that way. Does that make sense? It's just been too long. But the story's gotten much more precisely delivered to sell the point that I sell with that story. And so it's... You know which one? The toy story where you threw the, the little toy and hit Blaze in the face? Yeah. Yeah, so I know it happened. But, like, it's just gotten very precise and I tell the story to get a meaning across. All right? There's a similar thing going on with Chronicles. So you can actually compare Chronicles, read some of the same stories in 1st and 2nd Kings or 1st and 2nd Samuel. You read the Chronicles version, and the Chronicles version isn't wrong. It just tells the story differently. Sometimes it <coughs> emphasizes different things. Sometimes it straight up deletes certain things. So if you're talking about the good old days, and you start talking about King David... What might you not include? Bathsheba. Bathsheba. Interestingly enough, there's no Bathsheba story in First Chronicles. Now, we have Bathsheba story because we have, um, what is that, Second Samuel? Um, so it's in there. We know it. But it's not in the Chronicle perspective. So Chronicles also, so next blank, Chronicles focuses on Judah rather than Israel. And you know what the division there? All right, so we divide the kingdoms. Judah is the southern kingdom. Israel is the northern kingdom. When they come back to Israel and resettle, which kingdom is it that they're rebuilding? Judah. Where's Israel? Scattered. Spread out. There's people all over the planet that could connect themselves to Israel, but they're not a nation anymore. The closest thing they have to a nation is this thing that happened where some other people moved in and created a half-breed version of, of Jews, created their own version of Yahweh and their belief system. And in the New Testament, what do we call those people? Samaritans. The Samaritans. So Chronicles, because they're the only ones left, emphasizes what happened to Judah. So if you're trying to find these stories about the, what happened in Israel, you only get a handful of them. In Chronicles, and usually only because that story has something to do with Judah. So if Judah did something and Israel was involved, Israel gets included. 
if Israel did something without Judah, you're not going to see that story in the book of Chronicles. So it's focusing on Judah rather than Israel. So if you're reading that and wonder why it's different, that's one of the key reasons. Number three, Chronicles emphasizes King David. Because what kind of king was David? Borderline perfect. I'm going to put quotation marks around perfect. That's David. He's the perfect king. So, what about David's life, or really what category of David's life could we really say this was even remotely true? It's certainly not true in one area of life, right? Well, whole one category of life, David gets no positive credit at all, okay? But what area could we say almost the reverse? He's a shining example. He was faithful to Yahweh. And faithful in the Old Testament, that's what the word means. So Chronicles emphasizes King David and his faithfulness. He was faithful to Yahweh, comparing kings to David's kingship. So basically, a king is judged by how much like David they were in that one respect. So, if a king allowed the worship of idols, what kind of king was that? He was a bad king. He wasn't like David. If a king instituted reforms and kicked out the bells and the astros and, and reestablished the worship of Yahweh in Jerusalem, what kind of king was that? It's a good king. doesn't matter if he was a terrible military leader. Doesn't matter if he was horrible at economics and the economy crashed. Doesn't matter if he expanded the borders. Doesn't matter if he lost the borders. The only thing that mattered from the assessment of the Chronicles is whether or not Yahweh and Yahweh alone was emphasized as the God of Judah. Does that make sense? So that's the book of Chronicles, and it runs all the way to the Babylonian captivity. You'll see also, just like the other books, emphasizes the first three kings over the hundred plus years of other kings. It's still going to emphasize Saul, David, and Solomon. They, they have a prized position within Old Testament history. Okay, so let's go to books of Ezra and Nehemiah. Yeah, go ahead. You said Chronicles was after the exile. But Written after the exile. Oh, okay. So it's about everything that led up to the exile. But it was written after they got back home. So everybody follow what I'm saying there? Okay. Now let's go to Ezra. So Ezra and Nehemiah, um, and a lot of times in, in ancient scrolls, they're on the same scroll. So sometimes considered one book. So we're just going to look at it from that perspective because they're about... That some of the work they do, actually, they do together. So we're going to look at what they're doing. So let's just start in the very first verse of Ezra, and you'll see when this is set. In the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled, the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, so that he made a proclamation throughout all his kingdom and also put it in writing. And we'll just see how that opens. Thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, The Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdom of the earth, and he has charged me to build him a house at Jerusalem, which is in Judah. <laughs> Y'all know what it means. In Judah. So what house is that that he's going to have rebuilt? 
This is the temple. This is the temple. So Ezra and Nehemiah are going to be different players um, in that story about how the temple and ultimately how Jerusalem get rebuilt. So where do you think Ezra and Nehemiah are going to come from? Babylon, Persia, they're all in that area. Esther happens during the middle of this story, and it's all going on. Susa, I think, is over on this side. It's been a while since I looked at a map. I think Susa's like over in that territory, which is where Esther takes place. Um, and then Daniel, of course, he's in Babylon for most of his story. Um, so they're going to come from over there and return to just Judah. And of course, you may remember from a few weeks ago we mentioned this. They're no longer called Israelites after this, or at least rarely are they called Israelites. What are they called? Judites, but that gets shortened. Jews. So Jews end up moving back. And, of course, we changed the spelling. So now it's the Jews who have returned to Judah. Okay? Everybody with me? All right, so let's just walk through the basic pieces of this narrative. First section, Zerubbabel rebuilds the temple. So if you look at the first six chapters, you'll see about the... The, he, he was commanded by Cyrus to do this. You see all the exiles that come back with him. What's interestingly, what's interesting about the exiles who come back with him is how small that number is compared to how many exiles there were out there. So imagine an edict goes out. Hey, guys, you can all go home to your home country, and like 5% of them go home. What does that tell us? They got comfortable. Some of them, and we'll find out, never, historically speaking, never went home. If you think about it, you get to the New Testament. Every time Paul goes to a new city and preaches the gospel, who's he start with? Jews. Jews. But what countries is he in? Doesn't matter. Anywhere he goes, there's Jews there that never went back home. They may have kept their character, they may have kept their identity, but they never went back home. They might make a pilgrimage from time to time. But they never <coughs> went back home. Um, do y'all know what that group of people is called? I thought it was in the outline, but I don't see it. Diaspora? Diaspora. I might be spelling that wrong. No H. No H. Yeah. There you go. Diaspora is how I've heard it pronounced, but I actually am terrible about those things. I've heard so. it both ways. I, I, I got it in my head. Which one sounds better? Diaspora? I like Diaspora. It's Greek. It's it's straight up a Greek word. So uh, anyway, sorry. We'll 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 continue. That was a side note. So Zerubbabel rebuilds the temple. Then you fast forward down to chapter seven, and this is where the the book's name. This guy he comes in. So you'll see in the reign of Artaxerxes, king of Persia. This is where Ezra gets sent, and he's going to show up, and he's going to teach the law. The law. Why would they need to know the law? Well, if you think about it, in exile, there were things they could not do. When they're living in Babylon, can you give me some examples of things that are commanded of them that they cannot do while they're in Babylon? Sacrifice. The whole sacrificial system, the entire thing they cannot do. In a lot of ways, they can't do most of their festivals. Now, they could probably figure out a way to do it, but the fact of the matter is is they really needed the temple to do most of those things. So 
even the Passover. They really needed the temple by this point because it was part of their system. And so they had learned to be Jewish, and being Jewish meant, well, at least we don't eat pork, or <coughs> we don't work on the Sabbath, or at least some of us don't. You know, it was even that wasn't done well, but they had defined themselves that way. They come back, they rebuild the temple, and they have no idea what to do there. And so Ezra comes back, and what do you think his primary role is? He's a scribe, he's a student of the Torah. All right, guys, here's how it works. Here's what you need to do. And he does that for the rest of the book, which is not that far, but three and a half, four pages. He's uh, trying to teach them and reestablish the priesthood. And then he has to deal with this common theme. I had to make it part of the outline. But intermarriage. What was the big deal with intermarriage? Uh, just to be clear, Ezra and Nehemiah. In fact, Nehemiah ends with a hissy fit. He's like, they're just all intermarrying. And I'll tell you how the book ends. <laughs> He's just upset about it. Right, but this is a big deal in Ezra and Nehemiah that they're intermarrying with these other people groups, these, these Canaanites who are still in the land. Interestingly enough, those Canaanites were the Jews who didn't leave. So they weren't even supposed to intermarry with the Jews who had stayed. It's insane, really, if you think about it. How, how I say insane. It, it was extreme how fanatic they were about this. So why was that such a big deal? That they not marry these other folks? Because it wouldn't keep them set apart. They wouldn't be set apart, and then you said false gods. What went wrong with Solomon? Married too many wives. Wow, okay, well, you know, I understand. That's not recorded, is it? Edit that out. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so the idea is these are outside of the faith. So in that culture, ethnicity and religion were identical. There wasn't a difference. Um, and so they were intermarrying with people of different religions. Now, what's really fascinating about this is Ezra and Nehemiah forced them, in some cases, to get divorced. But then there's a prophet living at exactly the same time who wrote a book during this time, and we happen to be studying it on Sunday. And uh, what book is that? Malachi. And the passage this coming Sunday, he's going to condemn the people for doing what? You know? Divorce. So there's a little bit of a tension there. Were Ezra and Nehemiah right to tell them to divorce? Because the prophet is calling them out for doing it, yet here Ezra and Nehemiah are telling them they should be doing it. So, interesting question. I'll cover that more on Sunday. Because um, the New <laughs> Testament formally answers the, the drama here. But, uh, so, they were intermarrying with all these different people. So, you'll see that a lot. If you flip through, that's what's going on. Those, there's an entire list. That's how Ezra ends. Here's the people guilty of intermarriage. <laughs> Literally, that's what that whole section is. Can you imagine? Hey, my name made it into the Bible. Because I was guilty of intermarriage. And so... That's Ezra. Then we pick up with another character. And for us, this is Nehemiah, but in, in ancient Hebrew, this has been the third part of the book. So section number three, first seven chapters, Nehemiah shows up to rebuild the wall of Jerusalem. Exactly. To rebuild the wall of Jerusalem. <coughs> There's some really interesting stories there. They get a lot of opposition. Um, and so, interesting enough, some of the opposition comes from the Jews who never left. 
are the ones still hanging out. They're upset that they show up and throw a kink in everything about rebuilding this wall. And at some points, there's so much tension about rebuilding the wall, they're, they're having to rebuild the wall one-handed. But what are they doing with their other hand? Sword. Holding the sword or spear or any kind of weapon they could just to protect themselves while they were rebuilding the wall. So eventually they make some success there. And then uh, we enter the fourth section of the Ezra and Nehemiah story. And this is the happiest portion of the book. It's, it's the most exciting piece of the entire narrative. And you probably, if you've ever heard a sermon out of Nehemiah, it probably came from chapter 8. Anybody know what the big thing that happened in, uh, in Nehemiah chapter 8 was? An all-day sermon. An all-day sermon. And they were standing. And uh, actually, they read the Torah out loud, standing. You think we could get a group to do that? Yeah. <laughs> Sunday morning, be like, all right, guys, we're just going to start at Genesis, and we're going to finish in Deuteronomy 34. Nobody move till we're done. Please stand. <laughs> Please stand. <laughs> well, that's what they do. And they, they read the law. Let's see, jump down to verse 5 of, of Nehemiah 8. It says, Ezra opened the book in the sight of all the people, for he was above all the people, and as he opened it, all the people stood. So they basically, they built this platform, kind of, this is where we get the idea of a podium from, really. And so the, the pulpit here, they're standing on the pulpit, elevated, and a lot of churches, um, older churches actually, really elevated the, the pulpit, just so that all could see it and had decided that it's above you. Not that the person was, but that the, the word that was being shared was. So he opens it. The point is, all the people can see it, and all the people can hear it. Verse 6, And Ezra blessed the Lord, the great God, and all the people answered, Amen, Amen, lifting up their hands, and they bowed their heads and worshipped the Lord with their faces to the ground. And you get a bunch of names. Skip down to verse 8. They read from the book, from the law of God, clearly, and they gave the sense so that the people understood the reading. Now, what do you think gave the sense means? There you go, expository preach. He explained what was going on. You know, how many times have you read the Bible and then went down and read your footnotes and your study Bible because you didn't know what was happening? So Ezra's doing that, or yeah, Ezra's doing that here in this moment, and he's basically preaching. They're going through the entire law. And then verse 9, Nehemiah, who was the governor, and Ezra the priest and scribe, and the Levites, who taught the people, said to all the people, This day is holy. To the Lord your God, do not mourn or weep. Well, why would they lead that way? Guys, don't mourn or weep. He's been reading the law for hours now at this point, giving the sense. And he says that because, you'll see the next thing, for all the people wept as they heard the words of the law. Why are they weeping? They're guilty. Because what's the law tell them? That's your sacrificial system. That's your feasts, your social structure, your civil government. Everything about Israel's culture has just been read to them. And how much of it are they obeying? <clears throat> Almost nothing. They're horribly um, corrupt in God's eyes. And also, they've read the Torah. There's a blessing and curse system in the Torah. If you do these things, I will bless you, God says. If you don't do these things, I will curse you. Furthermore, they're hearing out, some of these guys probably hearing it for the first time. They know now 
why their parents were in exile, why their grandparents were in exile. What did we do wrong? We started worshiping these other gods. And God cursed us, sent us into exile, and here we are. And this is where we get a big Feast of Booths celebration. The people confess their sins. It's really glorious spiritual renewal. So that's the fourth section, 8 through 12. Spiritual renewal. Unfortunately, however, um, the book does not end in that state of spiritual renewal. Oh, I should also note, I didn't say back when they built the temple. Um, that was back at the beginning of Ezra. They rebuilt the temple. They have the temple dedication. And I've mentioned it before, but just to make sure what we all remember, when Solomon built the temple and they had the temple de- dedication, <laughs> what did the Lord do that day? He showed up. He showed up. The, the cloud of glory came down. God's presence was seen and felt among the people present at the dedication. They rebuilt this temple, um, Zerubbabel's temple, which will eventually be Herod's temple. And uh, they rebuild it, and all the young people go, ooh, yay, our building's done. This is exciting. And the elders, some of them who had seen the temple in its former glory, what they do? They weep, not for joy, but for sorrows. Like, this is the best we can do? And God didn't even show up. There's no cloud of glory, no dissension. So there's a lot of uh, negativity, and maybe call it pessimism, in Ezra and Nehemiah. Because our golden age is behind us now. I hear that lingo a lot, even today. Oh, back in my day, you know, that's their attitude. They're, they're not in their prime now. They're looking back. So in Solomon's temple, they actually have the Ark of the Yes. They do not have the as far as we know, they do not have the Ark of the Covenant now. We don't know where it disappears. <clears throat> After it's destroyed by Babylon, we never see the Ark of the Covenant again. Unless you, you have seen Indiana Jones, then it's, it's, then it's in a warehouse. Island. Then it's buried, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> the Germans have it. Um, but uh, I always thought it was weird in that movie that the Ark of the Covenant really did have power. Like, what did that mean? Like, it had its own power, not God's power. Well, I guess. Was it? I mean, I didn't know. But I saw it again the other day. I was like, I don't know what they're trying to get at here. But then the aliens were real in the newest one, so I guess it's just whatever goes. You know, I don't know. I hope I didn't spoil the new one for you if you never saw it. So, Okay, the aliens don't are Don't worry, real. I'm not going to see it. There. <laughs> there you go. Okay, so let's go to chapter 13. So this is how Nehemiah ends. And basically, the, the summary version here is Nehemiah going around. He's complaining about the high priest and really the, the whole system and all those people intermarrying. And he basically is like, well, God, I did the best I could. End of Nehemiah. So I contended with them and cursed them and struck them and pulled out their hair. Yes, that's Nehemiah. Yeah. That is ne- so when we see Jesus, you know, <laughs> casting out people from the temple in the New Testament, you know, that's that's not really new. Um, Nehemiah has done the same thing. Um, he was very upset. <coughs> Nehemiah ends depressingly. Why do you think they would even include this book if that's how they're going to end it? Even Deuteronomy. You remember how Deuteronomy ended? Moses prophesied that that prophet like him would come, and he didn't. 
it's interesting to me. The Old Testament ends the question mark. It's not a finished story. It's not a complete story. And uh, you've ever heard of the Bible Project? They make these little videos. I really love their video on um, Ezra and Nehemiah because it ends with that. Uh, well, I guess the way he kind of wraps it up in the video is because the actual problem had still not been dealt with. And what was the actual problem? Sin in your heart, right? You, we, broken on the inside are what has got to be fixed. And what has Christ come to do? He didn't come to fix their external problems. He didn't come to rebuild walls around Jerusalem or restore the temple. He came to be the new temple. He came to do a work of sanctification in us. And that's why Ezra and Nehemiah ends with that pessimism, I think, is because it's just looking forward to the New Testament. Okay, book of Esther. Y'all know the story of Esther? General story is Esther's a Jew. She has to participate in a beauty pageant to be potentially the wife of the king of Persia. Now, when we say wife here, be sure you understand that that does not mean monogamy. Okay? One of the wives of, of the king of Persia. And this is probably... Uh, most scholars would say that the king of Persia, in this case, is the dad of the king who's in most of the Ezra and Nehemiah stories. Not Cyrus at the beginning, but for Ezra and Nehemiah, that section of history, this is probably the dad of that king. So that means, chronologically speaking, Esther would have happened before most of the content of Ezra and Nehemiah. Not the rebuilding of the temple, but everything else. So the sections, so sections two through the conclusion happen after Ezra. I'm sorry, happen after Esther, but Esther happened between the first and second section. That makes sense. You with me there? All right. So let's just think about what's going on. So the king of Persia is probably Xerxes. Um, he's called Ahasuerus here, which is a Hebrew spelling of the Persian <coughs> version of the Greek name Artaxerxes or, or Xerxes. Everybody follow that? That's why it's confusing historically. So Persia spoke Persian. Or there was a name for that. Is that Akkadian? It's been a long time. I, I don't remember. There's a name for their language. The name in that language translated into Hebrew sounds kind of like Ahasuerus. Does that make sense? We call him by the Greek version of his name, which is Xerxes. It's just Old Testament stuff is complicated sometimes. So it's probably... Um, that king, the father of the Persian king who supported Nehemiah and Ezra. So Xerxes and father. Most interesting thing about this book, God is never mentioned in the book of Esther. Look through there, try to find Yahweh. Try to find the Lord. Try to find God. Um, Interesting. There, there was really by the time of the New Testament, the Old Testament was established, so it's really hard to make any legitimate claim that this book was left out. But because the, the canon was well set by the time we were asking questions of canon, um, but you know there have been people asking that question over the history. You know, why do we have a book that doesn't mention God? Um, so that's interesting. The book is set after God's people were allowed to go home. That's also interesting. Because if they were allowed to go home, where would we expect them to be? 
in Israel. And this story set place like <coughs> deeper into Persia than they would have been because of the exile. They're even further away from home now. And are there Jews hanging out there in Susa with Esther? Or is she the only one? No, there's a lot of them. That was the whole deal with her being pointed at such a time as this. You remember the narrative? So she ends up winning the beauty pageant. She does become one of the wives of Ahasuerus, and there she is. Then there's Mordecai, her uncle, and then there is Haman, the wicked guy who wants to have all the Jews killed because he doesn't like Mordecai. Then there's the whole elaborate scenario where he tries to make this proclamation where all the Persians, or really any other people group, can kill the Jews and take their stuff. And then uh, meanwhile, Mordecai had overheard a plot to kill the king, and he um, basically outed it, and so basically he saves the king's life. Well, the day that Haman shows up to get um, this, basically he wants to have Mordecai executed. He shows up, and King Ahasuerus had just read the story, they didn't even know about when it happened, that Mordecai had saved his life, so Haman shows up with the plan to kill Mordecai, but instead, Ahasuerus gives him the command to lead Mordecai through the district on the king's horse. And this is what happens to the man in whom the king has favor. And it really humiliates him. Then Esther throws a banquet, eventually exposes the plans of Haman. And then the king has Haman executed on the exact same gallows or stake um, that Mordecai was supposed to die on. And then Mordecai ends up exalted in position. They undo the... Um, the, well, not undo. They, they make a second um, decree that technically undoes the first, undoes the first decree. And then they celebrate a feast, and that's called the Feast of what? Remember? Purim. Purim comes from that. And then the Jews are all saved and grow and flourish. And that's how the book ends, with no direct reference to God. So what do you think the story is about then? Why include this story? Why, why tell this story and leave God out of it? You ever feel like your story is progressing daily and sometimes you feel like God's not in the story? Like, where is he? What's, I feel, feel, have you ever had that time where you just felt like you were in a season where God was silent? Didn't hear anything going on. Well, what's the truth of the matter? He, he's working it all out. That's the point. The story of Esther highlights God's sovereignty. And not just in Israel over here, but where? Way over here in the capital of a pagan nation, God is still sovereign. He's taking care of his people, and truth be told, neither Esther nor Mordecai are excellent examples to follow, save one thing. What's the one thing they do well? They just trust. Trust God's going to work it out. Remember what Mordecai told Esther when she's not sure she can go before the king she might die he says perhaps you came for just a time as this well according to whose plan you know is the question that's being asked. according to god's plan so god is sovereign he's working out these details we can trust him and what he is doing and that is the book of esther so now we have formally finished the writings so the first half of the writings is the wisdom literature the second half of the writings is um, Ezra, Nehemiah, Esther, and First and Second Chronicles. So there we are. There is your Old Testament. And surprisingly, we're we have five minutes left. So any questions mm -hmm. that you would like to ask?
Where is it that the returning Jews are going through the rubble of Jerusalem and they find the law? I think the story you're thinking of is with Josiah, and that's before the exile. Um, I it was after the uh, Jerusalem had been destroyed, and they come back. And they I think so, too. Is there one? Yeah. I know there's a story where Josiah has instituted law. reforms. They're working in the temple, and they discover a copy of the Torah. Yeah. That's definitely pre-exile. But if there is a story about them finding it after, it's going to be in Ezra and Nehemiah. I'm not sure where else it would be. It would have to be there. Yeah, but I didn't see it in there. Yeah, so it is Josiah. And actually, it would have to be in Ezra. It couldn't even be in Nehemiah, yeah. if, if that's the setting. Yeah, they found uh, uh, basically found the scrolls. Yeah, because oh my gosh, we've had a big following. Well, because Josiah had he like the temple had been in disrepair, right. and Josiah basically fixed that problem. Let's rebuild this thing, and then he ended up instituting all kinds of reforms because of that, because it was discovered. That's the one I know of, but my Bible knowledge is not exhaustive. So. Yeah, that's probably the one I'm thinking of. No, well, anything else? Four whole minutes. I don't think I let y'all out early. <laughs> <laughs> I'll lose sleep over that. We still have to pray. I'm saying, we may not make that one again. You're true. You're, that's, that is very true. the at some point reading these talks over that that was probably the reason was the ark was not there. But God can show up with it without an ark. Right. Well, if they could rebuild the temple, technically they could rebuild the ark. But we don't know that they did. <coughs> and there is a historical account I have not read, so I don't. I haven't read it myself, but I have read about it. I think it is when um, the first triumvirate in the Roman Empire, or before it was the Republic back then. You remember who those were? The three was Pompey, one of Pompey, one of them. I don't remember. It was in that era when they first conquered Jerusalem. One of the guys goes into the temple and uh, comes back out and is like, "Dude, there's nothing in there." My point being, he didn't find an idol, but like he probably would have considered the Ark of the Covenant an idol if he'd seen it. But he's like, "It's empty. They, they, they don't worship anybody." And so, probably then there was nothing in the Holy of Holies. When he went in, it was empty. But I don't know. It's an interesting question. I wish we knew the answer, but we don't. Well, if it's not there, the temple will be There's still a temple in Jesus' time. Mm-hmm. They still go, what, what, what does that guy do inside the veil? <laughs> He's certainly not pouring blood on the altar. Well, we know there's a true holy of holies in heaven, right. a tabernacle not made with hands. And Jesus had to go make the sacrifice on that one. And so, yeah, maybe it's just not there. I wish we knew that kind of stuff, but we don't. So it's it's hard for me. Okay. Excellent. So we'll pick up on a new topic next week, and I'll let you know what it is. So uh, I'm open to suggestions as long as it's not end times or Calvinism again. Uh, <laughs> both at the same time. Huh? How does Calvinism work out with eschatology? No, not doing that. Um, no. <laughs> we have a church split, man. <laughs> oh, goodness. Anyway, well, what prayer requests do you have tonight?
specific prayer requests. We spoke last week about our granddaughter. Mm -hmm. We found out 